Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Each year, the Governor-General appoints a select group of Canadians to the Order of Canada to recognize their extraordinary contributions to the fabric of this country. This week, we're getting to know a few of the new honorees. Michael Adder is an editorial cartoonist. He's drawn close to 20,000 cartoons on everything from Donald Trump's border policies to the lyrics of The Tragically Hip. You might have seen his work in Canadian newspapers and in The Washington Post. Michael Adder joins us now from Halifax. Michael, good morning. Good morning. Congratulations. Thank you very much. What does this mean to you, given what the work that you do to be recognized um, at this level? Uh, what does that mean? I think it's um, both the fact that I am receiving the Order Canon and the fact that it's for editorial cartooning that makes it special. Um, we've taken quite a hit in the past 20 years, I would say, so have us recognized means a great deal. We being editorial cartoonists. We meaning editorial cartoonists. Tell me about that hit. I mean, there was a time when, A, we all got the newspaper, and B, when we got the newspaper and we opened it up, there would be a series of editorial cartoons. What, what, what's different now? Yeah, there would be a series of local editorial cartoons. Uh, the local parts out of it, you know, the cartoon that you see most, most of the time now is usually from the syndicate. Um, so things have completely changed. We were talking before the news, and this isn't about local, we'll come back to that in a moment. We were talking before the news about U.S. politics. Um, how do you approach cartooning someone like Donald Trump? Is he good for, for someone in your line of work? Well, he's good and bad. Like I've always said that, um, you know, what he does... Um, certainly leads to really good ideas. It's getting that good idea. When you have someone that's that all cartoonists focus upon, doing something different is what's 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 uh, the, is the hard part. So mm-hmm. it's always hard to do my job, no matter who's in office. You drew uh, one cartoon of him that got a lot of attention. This was a commentary on his border policies. Why don't you describe it? I was going to, but why don't you describe it? Well, um, back in, I think it was 2019, uh, summer, uh, the border was an issue. Well, the border's been an issue ever since anyways, or for the past, since 2016, I guess. So um, uh, a father and, her, and his daughter tried to cross uh, the Rio Grande and end up getting caught in the undertow and uh, died. Uh, it was a famous photo, and I drew a cartoon of Donald Trump asking the deceased father and daughter if he could play through. And it became a As, as though he was on cartoon. a golf course. And he was, yeah, I made it look like it was on a golf course. The Rio Grande was just a, you know, a, a water danger. This exploded. Um, people like Alec Baldwin, Mark Hamill, and others weighed in on this. Um, there was an implication for your employment as well, in, in which you said that you, you believed it got you fired 
Um, well, it was it it was part of the the it was part of it. I didn't. I never said it was just that. Um, but um, there were indications that showed that it it played a role, or it had to have played some role. Why do you think it? Why do you think it evoked such a strong reaction? And was that reaction, in some ways, the point of what you were doing? Exactly. It is the point of what I do. Period. Um, I'm not. I'm not sure. You know, we as cartoonists, if we knew what what created a vile cartoon, we do it all the time. Mm-hmm. So I didn't set out to create that. But in a way, you always set out to try to be viral. You're always trying to attract as many bees to honey as you possibly can. In your recognition as a member of the Order of Canada, you were acknowledged as somebody who has um, created, in, in the words of the Governor General's office, pointed commentary. Tell me more about that role and your, what you're trying to do in provoking people. Trying to provoke a thought, a dialogue, and the cartoonist is uniquely qualified to 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 do this. In a, I guess uh, some would see as offensive way, and some would see as an impactful way, and we use satire to do it. Um, it's really just that simple, really. How do you figure out with, and this is the perennial question with satire, where the line is and what is, what is provocative and what goes perhaps a bit too far? Well, being the cartoonist, uh, my line is not that solid. I try to go over the line or I try to see the line is a little bit fuzzier mm-hmm. than, than an editor that, do, that has to deal with the repercussions of that cartoon. So my job is to try to get over that line or to go up to it as close as I can get. And it's the job of the editor to either hold or push me back. It's also, I mean, and it's not just about politics. I think of, um, and I had to go back and, and, and look at this to make sure that I was remembering it correctly, an image that you did after Tina Turner died. And she's standing there um, next to Queen Elizabeth. And Queen Elizabeth says, nice to see you again, Your Majesty. Yeah. Tell me about that. That's very different than than pushing people's political buttons with an image of Donald Trump. Well, that those that cartoon was a juxtaposition. So the way that I thought of that cartoon was far different than a normal cartoon. When you take two I, two news items, two things that happen in the news, and put them together, um, uh, I mean. You can't you you can't do that every day. Not every day do two items go together. Yeah. So when you usually how that happens is something big happened in like it, it was simple in that one. It was two queens, so <laughs> it was easy to put those two together. Why is it important? Do you think to give people a bit of humor in the news? The news is really hard a lot of the times, and 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 people might skip through again if they're reading the physical paper might skip through some of the most difficult parts. But when they stop on your cartoon, why is it important for them to have a bit of a laugh? Well, I I don't see it as that way at all. I don't see it as giving people a laugh. I I find it. The job, my job, is to provoke them emotionally. So sometimes the cartoon isn't funny whatsoever. Yeah. But I'm trying to promote an emotion on a hard day where you know uh, children are killed in a shooting in the U.S. You know, I'm trying to go. This isn't right. Or scream and sometimes into the void. 
this isn't right. Uh, and that is far different than just trying to make someone laugh every day. But it's not, occasionally you can't. Right. Occasionally, oh, and part oh, of that is is that if, that that range of human emotions that we're all trying to. to, to I'm an drive. editorial cartoonist. If I if I can find something funny in tragedy, I'm going to find it, and oftentimes I'm the only one that's going to be able to find that. And so I find that if I can go for funny, I'll go for funny every time. You mentioned before that that in some ways your role has changed when it comes to local um, stories and and things that you can comment on locally. Do you worry about, because we're buying fewer newspapers and we're reading fewer newspapers and people get information from all these different areas, that, that, that the next generation of editorial cartoonists will have an even bigger challenge um, than you have had? Oh, I don't even think it's going to be future. My job is changing every day. It's getting harder and harder to get a cartoon past the goalie. I, the goalie is the system, like editors and the newspaper itself who don't want to run something provocative and and you know i i'm old school um provoking someone is what i want to do i was told by a re- editor recently that i'm too angry i see my role is of being angry mm. if i if the editorial cartoonist is angry nobody's going to be angry Keep pushing our buttons. I'm really glad to have the chance to talk to you. Congratulations again, and thanks for all your work. Thank you very much, and thanks for having me on the program. Michael Deatter is an editorial cartoonist in Halifax, one of the new appointees to the Order of Canada. Our next guest is another one, Richard Wojcinski. He is being recognized as an officer of the Order of Canada for his leadership in shaping the worldwide response to HIV-AIDS, including organizing the first Canadian conference on AIDS in 1985, Richard Brzezinski is with me in studio now. Good morning to you. Good morning. Congratulations. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, this, we ask this question to everybody because it means different things to different people. What, what does this recognition mean to you? Well, I'm honored and, you know, I, I'm honored, I'm proud. But I think, you know, with a reflection after one week, and I remember speaking to my aunt. She's 87 years old mm-hmm. and she was my mother's best friend. And my mother died at a very young age. And as she was crying on the phone, saying how proud she was, I... It was transported back to earlier days, um, listening to my parents talk about leaving a refugee camp, coming to Canada, and never looking back and wanting to start a new life. And the motto of of the Order of Canada is Desiderantes Meliorem Patriam, which means they deserve a better country. Mm. And it was that value of coming into this country, being a first-generation Canadian, and listening to that and listening to how my parents actually made things and how hard they worked for this life to be better for me and how they always instilled in me the need for, you know, not being complacent, not just, you know, living it, but actually doing and contributing to the world you live in. And that was something that was brought up with. That was the, in my DNA, that's the way I was raised. And that's what my parents had to go through. I'm so glad I asked you that question, which seems like kind of, you could say, well, I was honored, but it's it's much more than that. Tell me, go back to 1985 and that conference that was held um, at a, it is such a different world at that point. Ronald Reagan was still the US president. I remember the uh, act up and silence is death signs throughout North America and beyond. What was the world... and the conversation around HIV and AIDS at that point? 
Well, it's it's an interesting uh, you know, juxtaposition of of HIV AIDS at the beginning and what we may have seen with COVID at the beginning. The sphere, the information was not there. There was there was actually no medications whatsoever, and people were confused. People and wouldn't I, even say the name of the. They disease. didn't. They had just started to talk about HIV and AIDS. They didn't have HIV yet. They told, called it all sorts of other diseases that were really quite pejorative. That talked about various groups, especially gay men and and people who use drugs and so on and so forth. Uh, but there was fear, and there was fear of this unknown, and there was this hope. As someone said, the science is going to solve this problem. Well, here we are so many years later, and science is not solved at all. Although we do have HIV and AIDS now as a livable condition with the right medication, you can live a very full life, have a family, and so on and so forth. So from those early days of fear and not knowing what this would be like, and me as a young gay man growing up going, you know, is this, is this going to be the rest of my life? I'm glad it wasn't uh, in that same way, but in fact, you know, it's preoccupied my whole life. What do you think your greatest contribution? You can you can um, put humility aside for a moment. Um, your greatest contribution in helping to shape the response to that crisis. What was it? Do you think? Well, there were different sections of my life, and you know, I worked at the l- local level in Montreal. Mm-hmm. I worked at the national level in Ottawa. I also then, you know, helped work uh, with the creation of an international NGO that was based out of Toronto. And then, of course, I went to the United Nations, and that was at, you know, different level. And all th- at all four or five levels, I've always done different things. I think probably one of the more interesting uh, things I did recently was created a publication. It was a curated publication called Equal Eyes. And it was published in Chinese, in in um Portuguese with our groups in in Brazil, in English. And we try to find around the world local sources which spoke about the need for empowerment, the the impact of technology, religion on the lives of LGBTIQ people. And we included women because we always saw the need for bodily autonomy as touching both the LGBTIQ plus community and women, Mm -hmm. and really looked at stories that connected it, stories from the North and from the South, which were both good and bad, not to make it sound like everything in the North is is perfect and in the South, you know, it's, it's, it's not. I think we found these glimmers of hope in every culture, in every language of how people were moving ahead, how people were looking for social justice and finding it, as well as the challenges to it from, you know, the right from certain certain segments of society that were really hellbent. Uh, when you asked that first question, you know, 1985, the LGBT community was coming out of, you know, those early days of the 1970s when things were moving forward, moving forward, and then suddenly hit a brick wall. Mm. And I think, you know, today we're seeing, you know, people hitting brick walls, women and LGBTIQ people. And I think the need for social justice has never been more powerful. Where do you keep the optimism? And how do you keep the optimism that you that you have? Because again, one of the things that happens in activism is you hit those brick walls and you think that progress isn't possible. You can't see, the, 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 you know, the accomplishments 15, 20 years down the road. How did you stay optimistic? I think, you know, as you grow old a little bit, and I've certainly gone through a few years of, of um, dealing with really difficult situation, I thought what was important to me was that I've been part of a wave. It's not like, you know, in the early days, that activism around LGBTIQ that I grew into, I didn't create it, but I was part of it. I was part of a movement that really uh, lifted up their socks and said, HIV is ours. We've got to do it. 
I'm now at that stage where, you know, HIV is different today. It's not the same as when I was growing up. And uh, that perhaps my time now needs to be done differently. I'm a, I'm a big believer in intergenerational learning, mm. that there's something that can be done, even if it's different, of how we work together, of the kinds of lessons we can share with each other. And I think that's where my optimism comes, that people after me will have to continue doing this. And I feel proud that I played a role inside my generation, inside my time, and people will take it further. And I'm really happy about it. Thankfully, my ego isn't so big and inflated that somehow I need to have my finger in every pie. And yet there's a lot that people can learn from you. So before I let you go, what would you say? What's your word of advice to that next generation of activists who are coming up? Uh, never let go. That, you know, at the end of the day, you are responsible for your health and well-being. As much as someone else will be there for you, you have to take responsibility. You have to step up to the plate. And social activism, uh, social justice, these aren't just principles. They're actually ways of life. And you can integrate this in your everyday life the way you now have to integrate climate, uh, you know, climate change. These are things we have to live with, so don't avoid them. Find a way to work on them even in your smallest of ways. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Richard Brzezinski was just named to the Order of Canada last month for his four decades of work on HIV AIDS. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Winona Giles has spent decades advancing access to education for refugees from around the world. She's also made significant contributions to the field of refugee and migration studies. And for this work, she has been inducted as an officer of the Order of Canada. Winona, good morning to you. Good morning, Matt. Congratulations. Thank you so much, and it's great to be on your program. What, I love it. <laughs> what was it? Oh, you're very kind. What was it that drew you to this work? I mean, where where was the entry point for you into the world of, of migration and refugee studies? Well, it may have been my background, which goes back to I was born in Iran of British and uh, father and, and a Nufi mother. Uh, and um, I at a sort of a teenage, uh, well, I was born there and then we went back there when I was a teenager. Mm. So my experience as a young person was very um, involved in uh, um, different, with different people, different diversity of um, cultures, etc. So, and moving around a lot. So maybe migration is partly, uh, you know, a reflection of my personal, my own personal life. But certainly I was al always um, from the get-go interested uh, in, you know, poverty and impoverishment and, uh, and that combined with, um, with migration. So it, it began with looking at migration in, um, of um, uh, migrant workers moving from, in fact, in, in Europe, Portuguese mm. migrant workers um, prior to the EU, uh, the, at that point, they were migrant and they were going from Portugal to England. And, and then on from there to forced migration and, uh, and then looking at long-term refugee camps. And a lot of that work was from a theoretical um, perspective. And at a certain point in time, I said to myself, where is the praxis in this? I need to be able to connect 
my theoretical understandings of migration and forced migration, refugee issues, and uh, you know what's going on on uh, what what can I do on the ground? What did you learn? You spent some time in refugee camps working with students, and this goes back to the piece yes. that I mentioned at the introduction around. Uh, contributions to the field of refugee and migration studies and, and education. What did you learn right. on the ground? Well, uh, I, maybe I can tell you just a, a quick story. I, in 2011, when we were in the early stages of developing the Borderless Higher Education for Refugees project, um, I was in a high school, uh, well, actually at a meeting of a PTA in the Dadaab refugee camps in northeastern Kenya, the Hagadera High School, and um, uh, this is a, a, a camp. The Dadaab camps are on the border with uh, Somalia and northeastern Kenya. And one of the members of the PTA um, had said to us that he had given up his food rations, uh, basically sold them, in order to contribute to the building of this um, of Hagadera High School, and uh, also in order to be able to hire teachers. Um, the PTA also built desks for the students. So he and other parents sat there looking at us and then said, we don't just want high school for our teenage boys and girls. We want them to go to university. And we want you to make it happen. It wasn't just me. This is never just, of course, uh, you know, one person. And I was there with um, a man called Dr. Marengu Najogu, who is uh, quite an incredible person. He's now um, the leader of the, uh, or the director of the Wendell International Kenya. Um, but he, um, so he had uh, certainly introduced us into the camps. And um, so from that point forward, really, uh, we began to build this uh, this project. And the Canadian government was incredibly supportive, not only at the research and uh, stage, but um uh, into the actual implementation. When you give somebody, I mean, it sounds obvious, but when you give somebody an opportunity for education in that circumstance, what does that mean? Well, that's a good, a very good question because people said to us, to me in particular, in fact, if they saw me coming uh, along the path at York University, they might often turn around and go the opposite <laughs> direction. But people would say, why on earth are you bringing higher education into a camp? And uh, I said, well, if I was in that camp, and, I, and I've talked to a lot of people in that camp or camps, um, I, would, uh, I would certainly want to have as much knowledge as possible to understand what this long-term crisis, this long-term refugee situation, uh, how it can be ameliorated. What can I do to improve my life, my family's life, my friend's life? And, uh, you know, f- starting from where I stand which is in the university, that's where I thought I could offer something. And I knew technology was almost in the 2011s, 12s, was getting to the point where we could do on-site and online, because a lot of it had to be online. There were four universities in that project, Kenyatta, Moy, UBC, and York. And uh, we couldn't all be there. We tried to be there as much as possible in the early stages of, of a degree program, but then we, you know, we had to be teaching in our own universities, et cetera. So we would, in fact, bring students into our classes. For example, at York, I taught a course in which I had students from Dadaab in the classroom. From, from the refugee camp in the class? Yes, they yeah. were not. It wasn't, of course, the time difference is such that it's asynchronous. But there were ways in which we had 
those students registered in my course. What uh, different? We're, we're almost out of time, but what difference do you think you made in their lives in, in creating something like this, but also giving them access to that education? Well, it was a pilot project. We proved that we Canadians can do this, that uh, anybody can do it. And in fact, others started to do this as well in those early days. And, and we opened our doors to um, telling them whatever we knew about this. Um, but it, it can be done. It's something that people uh, will be able to go home to. Some have gone home to Somalia with their skills, They're either in public health or geography or liberal arts or education degrees. Um, they've gone on to work with international agencies. They've improved conditions in the camps. They've they're actually teaching Kenyan students as well in high school and elementary schools. So it, it's, I think, incredibly, I mean, people themselves have, have um, benefited and, and then students in the schools mm-hmm. um, where, these, where these people are teaching or, yes. What a tremendous impact. Well, it is. I hope so, and I hope it continues. <laughs> I hope that others take up the, uh, uh, you know, um, take up the, uh, the, the, the challenge. It is challenging. There's no question. I'm really glad to hear about the work that you've done. Congratulations again. Thank you very much, Matt. Take care. Winona Giles, Professor Emerita at York University and a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada and one of the new inductees to the Order of Canada. We're going to continue our conversations with new recipients of that recognition later on this week. Among our guests health reporter and frequent guest on our program, friend of The Current, Andre Picard, and the broadcaster, George Strombolopoulos. That and more coming up later on this week on the program. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.